Where's the control? Where's the control? I don't know, man. I don't know where the control is. can't remember what I've been doing. Yeah. It's all, it's all blur. Mm. Right, tell me when you're recording properly. Let's let's do this right. Well, I am recording. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we go then. Yeah, go. Hello! Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> that's, that's, that's... Whoa, really yourself back in nature, for Christ's sake. Professional. 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 Welcome <laughs> to episode 24? Yeah. Four. Yeah. Of... Uh, the Tetrapod Zoology Podcast with me, the- <laughs> Darren Nash. And I don't cover That's a great, that's a great, great John Conway voice. I didn't know you could do such a good impression of me. <laughs> <clears throat> now, now I'm back into normal voice mode. That'd so, what's new? Well, ah, uh, um... Oh, I should have the agenda up so I can remember what happens first. Is it? Are we starting with follow up? F U. F U. F U first. F U. Right. F U. Um. It's a whole bunch of things. One. <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, yeah, let's start with the obvious shoop is shoop. Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt rides a moose across a river. Yeah. I'd never heard of this. By yeah. the way, we're referring to stuff in the previous episode. Mm. I'm sure you've all listened to that. So Teddy Roosevelt rides a moose across the river. I wasn't aware of that, so I googled Teddy Roosevelt rides a moose across the river, and I found this photograph: <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt riding a moose across the river. And immediately, to me, bit of an expert on mooses, I was like, "That's not real," because because the the size of them is mooses are big, but this moose is disproportionately big. And uh, but basically, the photograph is a is a uh, yeah. A it's, montage. Um, it's if a you actually look at it like last episode where i said i i was looking at it i was just looking at the google image results you know a little thumbnail right but if yeah. you actually zoom into it yeah it's pretty obviously a photo it's obviously job. a hoax so it's yeah. and i would let you off anyways it's one of those phantom memory things that you don't necessarily but yeah, yeah. so that turns out not to be true but whether teddy roosevelt did ever ride a moose i don't know um sure when we were talking did. about huh i'm sure he did Yes. When we were talking about, do you remember we had a long section last time in the cash for questions section about the origin of tetrapods and tetrapod-like fleshy-finned fishes? And I was talking about Tiktaalik and the Elpistostegalians. And I said, there's another name for those animals and I can't remember them. Remember remember that name. It's Pandarichthyids. Okay. Pandarichthyids. Great. In the same tedious discussion (laughs) about non-tetrapods, you... Brought up the whole issue of I wonder if there have, I wonder if there have ever been any other animals, other lineages that have taken to land outside of, you know, the tetrapod lineage. And I said, I don't know, they're not tetrapods. And you said, damn it, Darren, I want an answer. Well, Cameron McCormick, regular listener, quite useful person to know, uh, Cameron reminds me of mudskippers. Which are well, yeah. This 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 is the interesting point. So there are other line- other fish lineages besides tetrapods, which are obviously a lineage of fleshy finned fishes. There are other tetrapod lineages that have 
you know, become amphibious or semi-terrestrial. They might they, they might still have gills and they might, you know, they need to go back to the water on a regular basis, but you can still say they have invaded the the edge of the land. And mud skippers, for example, there's also like climbing perches and swamp eels and other fish, aren't there? And then oh, multiple invasions of the land in arthropods, yes. Yep, that's for real. Um, oh yeah, we knew about that. We knew we? about that. We yeah. did mention that, but we discounted them. Yes. But um but but what but I think either one of us was sort of saying is it right that the different arthropod lineages evolved independently from different aquatic yeah, ancestors? That, yeah. And yeah. the answer is yes. Okay. They did. They did. Uh so that might be it for FU oh. for now. That's all I can think of. By the way, two minute rule in effect. Uh huh. Uh huh. They on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> How long was the last pot? The last episode it was like two hours or something. <laughs> it was two hours long. Yeah, that's so, too long. Well, so if you could do the... less droning this time, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> well done to anyone who listened through it. Yeah. Um. I'd say that's it for a few. It seems like we should have more. I'm surprised yeah. we didn't get more wrong in two hours. Oh, there was also a question on the um. Uh, at at the at the the site that where someone's are someone said something about um uh, I said some throwaway thing about moose mooses and domestication and mooses being too clever which was just some stupid thing I just said off the top of my head it was rubbish absolute rubbish <laughs> and uh, it's completely wrong and 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 I think this person was called P Funk <laughs> and, and they said um, they said really. Uh, mooses are too intelligent to be domesticated. Well, what about elephants? They might not have said it in that tone of voice, but something along those lines. And my response to that is, yeah, you're right. I don't know what the hell I was talking about. It was just an idea. I don't know. Because is there any correlation between intelligence and domestication? Well, no. Mm. Given that given that people have domesticated things from across the entire spectrum, yeah. intelligence. Yeah, it was a pretty dumb thing to say because I'd say the only thing, the things that are more difficult to domesticate are probably really, really stupid animals, right? Maybe, maybe. But what is domestication? As we've we've gone through this before, haven't we? When we were talking about lizards and stuff, if domestication well, just involves creating a strain of things that are reliant on you in some way, no, I think they have to have adapted their behaviour towards toward to humans, uh, somehow, either by not pooping on the floor, letting you ride on their back, these sorts of things. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's very... But then there's this, yeah, there's the whole, like, domestication for farm animals. Is that domestication? That should have a different word. Well, that's that's the thing, because it actually, it actually encompasses a span of different processes. Yeah. So, like, because there are lots of creatures of all kinds, insects, reptiles, fish, where we've created forms or breeds or strains or whatever that only exist in captivity don't exist in the wild uh, yeah and we call them dom dom what domesticate because domesticate implies that it will sort of like you know let you pet it or yeah be, I don't, I don't. maybe we, we have to come back to this i think this, this is another one of those things where you can't just talk about it off the top of your head you need to know what you're talking about <laughs> I don't know. We need lots. Of, we need. We need. Um. We need stuff for the fu section, don't we? So this is this is good fodder for the fu section. There we go. We there should we make go. some more definitive statements that are completely wrong. Right. So domestication <laughs> requires an animal to be extremely to be hyper intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Fact. Yeah. Fact. 
But haven't people also, like, one more thing on this subject, haven't people also established that, well, not, not established, but claimed that the domesticated forms of some animals, mammals in particular, are smaller brains than the wild ones? So it has, I don't know if this is true, I, and I find, I've always... Fact. Fact. <laughs> smaller brained, more intelligent. What yes. we've done is we've made them, super, we've given them sort of super brains that are smaller <laughs> but better. So it has been said that domestic dogs have got proportionally smaller brains than wolves. Are you sure it's not the other way around? Oh, no, no, no. People have said that domestic dogs have got smaller brains than wolves. Um, but and, and then in the same kind of line of discussion, they say, ah, and, and Homo sapiens has got proportionally smaller brain than Neanderthals. Oh. So weird that mm. that's evidence that we're domesticated. Oi, <laughs> 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 <Oy>, dogs. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's this there's this whole really interesting but but quirky uh, parallel universe idea about um, humans actually being domesticated by some of the animals that we live with, and also um, certain of our um, anatomical features being unusual because we've offloaded them onto other domestic domesticated animals. So like we so so the human relationship with dogs is ancient, goes back possibly tens of thousands of years. Mm. Some studies indicating a couple of hundreds of thousands of years. Crazy. People talk about domestication event 200,000 years ago. Um, and in that case, there's like a pro prolonged coexistence, coevolution between Homo sapiens and, and dogs. And the argument there, and I, I, I've, I've always been vaguely aware of this, having read about it in magazine articles and seen it referred to on TV and stuff. I haven't actually checked out the papers or books concerned. But the idea is that... Um, that dogs took over the role of like uh, uh, being able to like hear stuff in the distance and smell at great distance and stuff, and uh, therefore that's why we've got a reduced sense of smell and reduce. If we if we do if we even do have a reduced sense of smell, reduced hearing, because yeah. th those are controversial things to say. Not controversial. They're like you know, airy fairy, not necessarily quantitatively established things. I um, thought I thought it was quantitatively established that we're inferior to dogs. We are to dogs, but are we yeah. to to previous? Like, yeah. yeah, to our ancestral to our lineage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and that and that's not clear because often these things are just throwaway statements, and when people actually test them, it's well, actual fact. You know, humans perform very well in sense of smell and all stuff, and so um, yeah, interesting idea. We'll come back to it another time, I'm sure. Ah, oh, I, I forgot why we're talking about this anyway. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It, it brain size and yeah. Yeah, well, that, that's some good fodder for FU, or more off the exactly. top of your yeah. head stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> news from the world of John and Darren. News ah, from yes. the world of us. <laughs> so, uh, where should we start? Um, Tetsucon. Tetsucon, yeah. Um, I forget whether we mentioned this last time on the podcast. Well, we, we kind of did, but I sort of think we have to remind people given that we want them to be aware of it. Yes, but I haven't... Nothing's actually changed, so... No, but the date we're talking about is still... Well, the date is fixed. The date is... Is, is it July the 12th? It's not... Don't say it's fixed, because I haven't ah. booked the venue yet. As far as Yikes. I know, it's still available, but... Well, I've been... So, so we've now got ten... <laughs> we've got ten speakers... Yeah, confirmed. You realise? Confirmed. So that's, that's a lot. Of, uh, yes. So that's a lot of people to 
Well, I coordination, get... Darren. Coordination. I've copied you on all the emails. We have to get them. Yeah. Sort of to agree as soon as possible, given that time is yeah. short. So um, it's. A... Sorry, go on. Yeah, I was going to say the reason I haven't confirmed it is because originally we were going. I was thinking about doing an all-inclusive thing, so we'd provide lunch. And it turns out the venue I had in mind, which was the London Wetland Centre, um, didn't allow outside caterers. So I've waffled on that for about a week and a half. Um, but I think we're going to go ahead and not provide lunch. Um, you'll have to... At TechZooCon, you'll have to go and scavenge. You know, I don't know. We've got birds there, right? So bring your shotgun. <laughs> Tetsukon does not condone the inhumane <laughs> slaughter of animals. <laughs> Non-human animals. I don't know. They're free range, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> they let a happy life. <laughs> I bagged me a nene at <laughs> London Wetlands. <laughs> and there will be prizes for the rarest, ad rarest bird bagged. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I'm shocked. I'm speechless. <laughs> I don't think people come to an all-day... Tetsu themed convention slash conference with a lunch in mind though. I mean surely you can forgo eating for that one day. <laughs> so we we seriously have a at the moment a um pencil written schedule um of talks ranging from cryptozoological in theme to some stuff on uh dinosaurs, pterosaurs, fossil marine reptiles um, some stuff on modern amphibians, conservation and um, importance to humans, some stuff on wildlife photography, and um, some well, general tetrapod-themed stuff. We're going to have some sort of quiz, which I'm going to have to write at some point, and, which reminds me, prizes. We need prizes for that quiz. Prizes, but, um, eh? Yeah. yeah. Limited John Conway prints, uh -huh. napkin edition. Maybe they get to hold your hand for five minutes. Oh, I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> um... <laughs> Yes, it's 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 going in in seriousness. It's going well, and it's still happening. So so TetsuCon is still go, and uh, the, the, there's a Facebook group, that, and there's also a Google Plus Google Plus group. Yeah, Google Plus. I hate Google Plus so much. Um, yeah, you sure do. I'm not really sure why, but it's awful. It's just terrible. It's it's the opposite of intuitive. It really is. It's like you, you say that about it. everything. It isn't the thing you use. Do you think Facebook's intuitive? Facebook's I a do. horrible Facebook, mess now. Uh, Facebook is very intuitive. Macs are not intuitive. <laughs> <laughs> They've got um, their close buttons on the left-hand side. Yeah, throw <laughs> me with this. What um, is this sinister magic? Yeah. Uh, what else have we got? Okay, Cryptozoologicon. Yeah, that's coming along. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's coming along apace. Yeah. Yeah. You slackers haven't done the artwork I needed you to do, so I can't finish it. I keep telling you, write the thing, and I'll do the artwork. To... I've written the thing. I've written <laughs> the bit you're supposed the one, the one with the samurai in it. Okay, haven't even good. finished that yet. No, I haven't finished it. God. So, so I've I've just been away. I've just come back from being away. My um. Have you changed all your passwords on all your internet, Darren? No. You know you should be doing that. I know. I know. I should. Um. <laughs> Of you, oh, you shouldn't have admitted. I should. You shouldn't have said that. Oh, the yes. You have to yes, do that before this comes out. Uh, yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. Because of heart bleed virus. Yes, it's not a virus. Can I explain what to it? you what it is? Go on. 
it's quite interesting and I think it's quite easy to understand. There's a good um uh XKCD comic about it. So where are you going? I can't Sorry, just... just carry on talking. Can we talk about computers so oh. you just wander off? Well, no. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Well, it happened last time. If I'm ever, whenever I'm doing a podcast, is of course when the post arrives. Hmm. Right. So yeah, I was going to explain what it is. Um, so it's not a virus; it's a programming bug, programming error, on servers to do with um, SSL. SSL is an encryption scheme, which is just basically meant to secure your connection to. Uh, place where you might log in, like, I don't know, Google or your bank or whatever. <laughs> Emails. Just about just about anywhere you log in will we'll use this this scheme. It's what HTTPS is. Um, and there was a particular implementation of this scheme called OpenSSL, which was used on about a third of all, or is used on about a third of all web servers. And it had a programming bug in it to do with a thing called heartbeat heartbeat was a was a way of just continually keeping the connection alive so you didn't go have to go through this complicated handshake when you first every time that you wanted to get a bit of data and what it did is it was just send a little encrypted word like i don't know bird or whatever and the server would repeat that back um, and I don't know how often it would do that, fairly often, maybe once a second or something like this. Um, <clears throat> now, OpenSSL is written in a programming language called C. And in C, you have to specify how long things are in memory. So when it received the word from the client, the person connected to it, it would say, the word is bird how long is it? And it would take that length. I'm not explaining this very well. You are. I can understand it yep. so far. Okay. It would take that length from the client. It would take the, the length of the word from the, the computer connected. So the server would take the length, believe the length of the word from the client and would just read out that memory to the client. So the client could connect to the server and say, okay, I want to do this heartbeat thing. I'm going to send you a word, you, re you repeat it back. It would say, okay, bird, four letters long. And okay, to repeat back bird, four letters long. But it could do this. It could say, okay, repeat this word back to me, frog, 500 letters long. And the server would go, okay, frog, and then just keep going for 500 letters. And in those 500 letters were whatever all the other connections were talking to the server about. So if someone was logging in, changing their password, this was just essentially reading out what's in the memory of the server, and it would just send it to you. And this has been happening on a third of the world's uh, <laughs> uh, servers. So the assumption now is that everything has been compromised. Yeah. Everything, because although it's 
a third of the world's servers, a lot of services use a mixture. So although Google mainly doesn't use OpenSSL, in some places it does. So you've just got to assume that everywhere you need to change your passwords. And if you're using the same password in several places, then yeah, obviously it's yeah. it's going to be gone. Now, there's some debate about whether it was being exploited before it was reported, you know, before it hit the news. Um, because this doesn't leave any traces. It's not like someone's sitting there trying to crack passwords. You know, you're not getting lots and lots of password requests or anything. Nothing suspicious looks like it's happening. And it doesn't leave traces later on. You can't go and tell whether people were doing this. So it's hard to know whether it was being exploited. There's some evidence that it was, but as I understand, that's a little bit shaky. Mm. But if it wasn't being exploited then, it sure is now. So, so is, it, is it known where it originated from? Yes, it's a bug in OpenSSL, which is a open source program. Mm, yeah. And and the poor guy that wrote it, you know, cuz all the commits, you know, to the to the um source code are tracked. Um <laughs> I think he's feeling pretty guilty right now. It was apparently a very I don't write in C. I you know, I'm a, I write in toy programming languages. Um but this is a fairly easy to make uh, easy error to make but also it's sort of because it's an easy error to make it should have been checked so lots of people are saying you know this is it's quite surprising that such a basic c programming error would make it into um what's meant to be you know one of the most secure bits of software in the world and it's and now that everyone's looked at it everyone's <clears> going oh my god this this yeah. is a, this is a big mess you know it's, this is not secure software it's very difficult to even understand what it's doing half the time um so yeah it was just a programming bug it was just he to get the length of the word he didn't check it he just believed it and you're meant to check it you're meant to check how long the word is right internally in your program rather than relying on the on your client to tell you how long it is because that's the whole trick so it's actually so, quite simple yes we'll change your passwords everyone yes definitely yes. it's a disaster i mean it's a it's, it's a disaster terrible. of epic Sir. proportions wow yeah yeah um my my concern about this sort of thing is always that i have so many passwords already i struggle to keep track of them but um and yeah. I don't, I don't use the same password for everything because that is bad practice. I have lots of different passwords. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's very difficult to remember. I mean, I would just say that the the age of having passwords and trying to remember them is sort of past. Everyone should be getting a password manager of some sort. Yeah, I have one of those, but I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> Give away the secrets. Um, it's yeah. called writing your passwords on your the desktop, trash. isn't it? No, no. <laughs> No one would ever be that. No one would ever be that stupid. Yeah. Peels off stick it note from <laughs> from front of screen. Well, Have you actually, heard about no. Ironically, that's probably that's probably one of the better ways of doing it. Because yeah. at least someone then has to actually be sitting in front of your computer to get to it. True. Yeah. Well, well, one of my concerns is that I, I do everything on laptops. So yeah. one of the concerns is always that if your laptop's nicked and your passwords are on it, you know. Well, that's yeah, but what this has proven is, you know what, you're screwed anyway. Laptop <laughs> nicked or not, everyone, you, you, you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and, and and it's called the what? So you said it's called Heartbeat, but why? So it's the the, heart, the feature is called the feature that was exploited is called Heartbeat. Right. 
So OpenSSL has a bunch of features, and one of these is to just keep a little connection alive by sending bits of data back and forth, yeah. and that was called Heartbeat, and right. that was exploited. So it's um, the exploited loophole, the problem that people are calling Heartbleed. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's a good word because the Heartbeat, and it is bleeding data out from the server, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And do we know, and will we ever know, whether anyone or any company or whatever has been horribly affected? Um, I don't know. I I presume that at some point it will, because oh god, there's another whole layer to this, which is certifications, C- certifications, C- certifications, so certificates, um, that tell you when you're connected to the real thing. Those are issued by c- certificate authorities, so. Yeah. When you're connected to Google, you, Google's got a certificate, and they have a, a thing called a private key. So people can't. It's meant to be completely secret. People can't um, impersonate mm. Um, mm. websites like like Google, like banks, like like lots of thing, lots of things. And it turns out that Heartbleed was leaking the secret key. Yeah. So, and. So people can now um, impersonate lots of websites, like all these, all the places that were using Open SSL. And certificates can be revoked, right? So what what's happened is all the sites that know they've well, all the good sites that know they've been affected have revoked their certificates and are getting new ones. But the problem is that lots of browsers don't check for revoked certificates. So mm. <clears throat> the, the whole thing, thing is that... just a complete disaster. You think nerds might have your back, you know, computer nerds <laughs> might have your back with all this security stuff. They don't. They really don't. It's it's a horrible, horrible big mess and no one really knows how it works mm. or how it's controlled or what to do about any of it. Oh, yeah. Because I think I noticed that when, when, there are, when problems arise... At sites nowadays, it's like you don't necessarily know there's a problem. You don't sort of see your stuff get nicked. There's just something malfunction. Something malfunctions in terms of the the normal way the site operates, and that's because, like for example, a couple of years ago, the whole of when I was part of the science blogs network, the whole thing just went down, and like you couldn't contact the site at all. You couldn't post new comments. You couldn't like log in or anything. And it was, well, it was thought to be some sort of Oh, what, are the, what was the precise term they used? It basically, it was some sort of cyber attack. Some like people flooding the server with malicious crap. Yes, uh, and just disrupts the 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 day to day performance. Not not that you would ne- not not that uh, the the front. You know, not that on the public side you would notice there was a problem. It just it was just not functional. And if you and if you think of that affecting things like internet banking or eBay or Amazon or anything like that, you're talking about loss of revenue of, well, we're talking millions of dollars yeah. or pounds. Or, well, I think most uh, of the attacks are pretty, like, if they get your password to your Twitter or whatever, or they get into your Twitter account, they just send spam from it. I mean, yeah. my, my Twitter account, because I use the same password that I used a lot of other places, um, was it was uh, broken into about a year ago 
And they just used it to send those spams, you know, those private message spams. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I get the number of fake Facebook friend requests I receive. It's just unbelievable. It's like every day is... Well, not every single day, actually, but many days it can be like 5 to 15 friend requests from what clearly aren't real people. Hmm. Fake accounts, glamorous pictures of women. It's just... I often so wonder though. I often see someone friend me on Facebook, and I look at them and think, "Are you real? Are you real?" Because <laughs> I think there's also what's going on is some of the the more sophisticated fake accounts. I think I've seen a couple of these, like nick someone's history. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the thing is that they can't go. So they nick their photos and stuff, but the most they can't go back further because Facebook doesn't allow you to post things in the past. You can't say, all right, I want to post this from 2006. So often they're quite shallow fake accounts. You know, there's they've got like lots of photos and stuff which look like they might be a real person, but their posting history only goes back a few days. Yes, anyway, right, we need to we need to Yes, it's not it's not the um the internet uh tetra internet podcasts podcasts or whatever. Um no, dinosaurs without bones. Dinosaurs without bones. Oh, yeah, that's kind of like a a follow-up-y thing. Uh, let me just get the book. So, I always receive. I'm always receiving new books for review or whatever. Some of them I even buy myself. Anthony J. Martin's book, Dinosaurs Without Bones: Dinosaur Lives Revealed by Their Trace Fossils. Uh, Four hundred and sixty pages on trace fossils and trace fossils. Obviously, for those of you who don't know, they are. Things, uh, fossils that are left behind, they're the remains of organismal activity like footprints and resting traces and nesting traces and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> skin impressions. And there's quite there's quite a lot of literature already on, obviously, dinosaur footprints and stuff, but most of it written by Martin Lockley. This is a new book, Dinosaurs Without Bones. Anthony Martin looks very good. And the reason I mention it, I have, I have it to review. I'll review it on Tetzoo at some point. Oh dear, I didn't do my homework here. The reason I mention it is because there's several pages, John, specifically devoted to all yesterdays. Uh, yeah, it's in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> it's in there somewhere. Let's let's, let's uh, do the Alanis Morissette thing. Where's my name? No, it's not in there. What about Conway? No, okay, let's try all yesterday's... How's this for good podcasting? No, it's yeah, not this is great, the index. Yeah. No. Okay, but there, yeah, a couple of pages on. And I think the thing he's talking about there is the fact that dinosaurs may have done unusual things that we might not have suspected based on the fossil record, and dinosaurs, as live animals, may have had soft tissue structures that we might not have, that we might not predict based on fossils alone. And I think that's what he's, that's what he's getting at. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll come back to that next time. But I just wanted to mention that. So there you go. That's quite a good plug for his book. It looks really good. I look forward to reading it. Well, there is I'm a Kindle reading... version. I will get it. All right. I'm still reading Andrew Mack searching for Peck Peck, which is about cassowaries. I really like that. <clears throat> um, so other stuff. Um, I've got a new paper out by <laughs> um, Mike Lee, Andrea Cow, uh, Gareth Dyke and myself, and I don't have it in front of me now, so I can't remember any of the, the title or anything like that. Uh, but it's on um, basically trying to 
date that well the timing of the avian radiation the timing of like when did crown birds actually evolve and we combined um andrea cow's giant um uh, theropod matrix obviously the part concentrating on birds in particular uh, combined that with well bayesian analysis to try and work out well when is the when is the most likely time in the cretaceous that the crown birds modern birds did evolve are they like a post mesozoic thing did they radiate in the paleogene uh, or did they actually get going in the in the cretaceous because this has like been a contentious thing there's various different models as to as to how birds actually originated where there's there's like a there's an idea that they were persisting at very low diversity for a, a long length of time or there's like explosive ideas of like explosive evolution during the cretaceous or after cretaceous we find that the strongest statistical support is for uh, an origin of crown birds in the mid cretaceous which actually pulls several lineages back obviously into the latter part of the cretaceous so um and that paper um, his link to, I just I find it on my, my publication site. Sorry. Just da, 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 da. Googling. <laughs> Tune in, listen to uh, Darren. Yeah. <laughs> System, it's in systematic biology, uh, morphological clocks in paleontology and a mid Cretaceous origin of crown aves. So, um, I don't think there's anyone from Elsevier or any of the big publishers listening. I do put all my PDFs on my personal site, which check out. So I've put the put the put the paper over there. So, so that's a new paper. That's uh, wordpress dot com, is it? That's right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I kind of need a better publication site, really. But well, it'll it'll do, I suppose. Um, that's like four papers I've published so far this year, which several more in in press or in review or whatever. I wanted to talk about a couple of new papers very briefly got to keep mm -hmm. it brief because john always talks so much we run out of time um so first of all keeping it mesozoic everyone is aware of pliosaurus what's it called kelvini kevini this this new giant uh recently named pliosaurus species from uh Kimmage bay in dorset um David Foffer and colleagues have just published in the past couple of days their long-awaited paper on the neurovascular anatomy of the snout of Pliosaurus. So they CT scanned the snout at the CT facility at the University of Stampton. We've got several CT scanners and we've got a giant one. We, we, the only, you know, one of very few in, in the country, one of comparatively few in the world that can scan objects the size of you know, the size of like a, an elephant skull or a pliosaur skull or a person, the whole thing. Um, and um, the, basically they describe this sort of complicated bifurcating system of canals and passageways in the uh, snout, uh, the snout bones of this pliosaur. And um, they suggest that this was some sophisticated sensory apparatus used in maybe something for detecting maybe similar to the dome pressure receptors that are present in the snouts and jaws of crocodilians you know used to detect changes in um pressure and temperature and all kinds of stuff in in water uh, or some other similar sensory mechanism so basically they're saying some specialized sensory mechanism in the snout of pliosaurus one of those sorts of things that you'd infer might have been present but inferring something and actually having data for it those are different things so that's pretty cool and that's in Nature Vision Shafton. Um, chickens. <laughs> chickens. Right now, 
Today is the 23rd of April, 2014. There's a, at the Royal Veterinary College, there is a conference happening called uh, Towards the Chicken of the Future, which is a whole a two-day conference devoted to the biology and genetics and evo-devo and everything of domestic chickens. I was really hoping to go to this conference, and I was, well, I was actually meant to go, but I was let down by trusty pals, <laughs> as usual. Um, so I'm not there. But there's a, an, another new paper that I've just become aware of published on chickens. I, I, was talking, see, I, I, I thought I should follow this up because I was talking about chickeny stuff last time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, always, yeah. <laughs> there's always something exciting happening in the world of chickens. Paper by Flinkertal. I think it was actually published in October 2013, but I've only just found out about it thanks to Glenn Young passing on. Flink et al. in PNAS, PNAS. And it's to do with, now this is quite a cool subject, and I'll try and keep it real short and simple. Um, domesticated forms of, here we go on the domestication thing again, John. Um, domesticated forms of animals tend to have like a special set of genetic characters that people historically have thought, ah, these are the key features that people selected for when they were domesticating these animals. They specifically selected for, you know, small body size or uh, unusually high number of, fecund you know, high fecundity or behavioral plasticity or developmental plasticity in terms of when they breed, that kind of stuff. And people have called these things, uh, sometimes, sometimes they call them improvement genes, they, they've called them like domestication genes, the, the idea that there's like key domestication things that people selected for. And in chickens, there's a couple of key um, aspects of their biology which make them seem like, that make them different from their wild ancestors, the jungle fowl, the, the red jungle fowl, the grey jungle fowl. Um, and which are thought to, yeah, people are thought to have like selected those things. A weird thing in chickens, domestic chickens, is they have yellow skin, not white skin, which is normal for birds. They have they have yellow skin, and this is so widespread in domestic chickens that it's been assumed that this is one of these key kind of domestication things that people selected for early on in the history of. Oh, they they maybe they were selecting for something else, but this yellow skin gene kind of came along as an accidental pleo tropic kind of side effect thing it's there's a it's a recessive allele of the well-known bcdo2 gene this encodes for the beta carotene doxygenase 2 enzyme as you know and it means it's to do with it it encodes for the kind of fractionation of uh carotenoids in the skin and it means that if they've got this recessive version of the bcdo2 allele it means that if they've got the recessive allele of the gene it basically means that they capture carotenoids in their skin which is why they've got yellow skin rather than the white skin they are in quotes supposed to have right so this yellow skin gene is present widespread in domestic chickens is it like a key thing that was somehow selected for early on there's another thing another genetic thing in chickens which which is to do with the way that their um thyroid works and and that and that means that you can have behaviorally flexible chickens that will like basically lay continuously throughout the year rather than certain times a year and it's been thought that people selected for that as well in domestication and there's a couple of other things as well but those are two of the key things the stuff related to yellow skin the stuff related to uh, this this uh, thyroid stimulating hormone um and it's, so it's been thought these are critical things people selected for in domestication this big study by Flink et al, they specifically were testing whether this is true. And do you know what? They found hmm. out 
that know. Those are new things that chickens were probably domesticated something like three to six thousand years ago. And these widespread, ubiquitous, important genetic uh, things in domestic chickens are new things that have only arisen, they reckon, within the last 500 years. So this is, this is another one of those kind of negative results studies. It's like this thing that we thought was like a crucial tie-in with domestication turns out not to be. It turns out to be something that's evolved far more recently and spread rapidly through all the domestic breeds. And the main thrust of the paper is kind of a cautionary tale is that we shouldn't assume that when we find key widespread um, uh, genetic, um, uh, I don't want to keep saying genetic things, but, but when we keep finding these... Well, that's the technical term, isn't it? <laughs> to use the, gen, the, the technical term. When we keep finding, when we find key uh, aspects of the genome that we think are like... I think know, there's a word for that. I think it might be genes. <laughs> When we find key genes, we mustn't necessarily assume that they are like that they were. Yeah, they've been there right from right from the start. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's in, because possibly what can go on is that yeah, there's rapid um, spreading of a gene through the yeah. domesticated populations. And yes, yes, and yeah. and if and if anything is clear from domestication, and nothing is frankly, but if anything is clear is that when people like latch onto a new thing, it's like oh, this makes your chickens grow faster or grow fatter or produce more eggs. It's, it spreads like proverbial wildfire through populations because people are like trading these animals and moving them around all over the place. So the story of chickens and that of some other domestic animals in, is essentially the story of humans in, in more than the birds in, in some ways. So, But the yellow skin gene thing, I've always been interested in that, and that's been a, a big evolving story in the chicken literature over the last few years. And uh, I'm sure we'll be coming back to it again. So. How exciting was that? Chickens. Flink chickens, up, always yeah. exciting. The exciting world of chickens. Now, moving finally to mammals, um, also what? on the subject... What? Oh, okay. Yep, alright. We're just... Can... <laughs> Christ, an hour um, in. An hour in, nearly. Yeah, well... We you haven't even done cash for questions. Blabbing <laughs> on about... Um, mammals, <laughs> firstly, there's... Now, what would you say is possibly the most exciting thing you could discover? a new large species of hoofed mammal in South America, right? Well, mm. there's a new paper it's by Mario Coswell and colleagues, published in Journal of Mammalogy, a new species of tapir, Taparus kebamani, <laughs> probably discovered originally by Teddy Roosevelt in 1912. <sighs> okay, uh, but there's a new paper... There's a photo of him riding it across a lake. Yep. <laughs> Is there anything you didn't shoot? Um... It is Ireland's largest lingerie section, I understand. Do you remember we did that whole skit about Father Ted on the London Underground? That was good. We should do that again sometime for the benefit of our listeners. Dingoes. There's a new paper in Journal of Zoology by Crowther et al. Uh, they have argued that the dingo should be recognised as a distinct species. And... I just want to bring attention to this. I'm not really, you know, again, this is, if we start talking about this, we'll do what John just did on chickens. We'll talk about it for ages. But um, basically, they say that they went back to the original, uh, like, earliest collected skins and skulls and things of dingoes and using morphometrics. First of all, those early dingoes were more diverse than the modern ones. Now, you might think that modern dingoes look kind of diverse in coat color. You know, they're not all yellowish. Some of them are like, you know, there's various shades of brown and there's even some black ones and all shades in between. And mostly that's to do with domesticate, uh, 
hybridization with domestic dogs. But they're saying that the early ones were more or less morphological, morphologically continuous, morphologically like consistent in terms of size and shape and the proportions of their skulls. But they're saying that in coat color, they were more variable. They're saying that, that obviously they weren't, that was before they'd been affected by hybridization with domestic dog breeds. But they, they say, these authors, Crowther et al., they say that using morphometrics, they're able to demonstrate that dingoes are like distinct from all other dogs and therefore should be recognized as a species. Now, um, there's a couple of, this is a really interesting idea. Uh, already I've had you know, sort of a bit of a Twitter conversation about a few people. Mike, Mike Dickerson, hi. Um, but um, w one of the things is they only compare, in their morphometric study, they only compare dingoes to dogs that are of like similar size and shape. Um, uh, now, nah, what's... It's... <laughs> it's uh, the, this, all, this, this is one of those problems, this is one of those areas that comes down to the fact that this dirty little secret that what is a species, the answer is, well, whatever the hell I kind of want it to be right now. So yeah. if you're talking about a population of animals, this, and you can identify it as a distinct population, and that's what they're doing. They're saying, you know, dingoes are a discrete, morphologically uniform population that can be differentiated from other canids. Does that mean it's a species? Well, most people would say no, because they're so similar to other dogs that the difference is too shallow for you to you know, make a claim for species status. But on the other hand, who says that they're not distinct enough? You know, that's the... the well, the, it the depends point. on, I mean, oh God, the species concepts. But well, that's the obviously the being able to interbreed with other dogs and have fertile offspring is a bit of a mark against you being a species if you generally adhere I've, to I've, the biological but, species concept. Yeah, but many people don't. I don't think that really counts so much, though. That, that whole hybridization thing, because when you look at wild animals, there's things that we are absolutely confident are. Well, there's things that everybody agrees are, in quote, species, but they hybridize regularly yeah. with others and can produce fertile offspring and regularly do so. And in fact, there are some things called species that are just the products of hybridization even. So And indeed, that, and, it, and it doesn't work very well in the time dimension either. Yeah. So, yeah. Obviously. So, so I, I suggest, unless you disagree with me, I suggest we don't discuss this any further. I just mm. wanted to kind of bring it to attention, the fact that dingoes, it's been claimed. This is in the Journal of Zoology, so this is not a, you know, grey literature paper. This is like a, a peer-reviewed proper, in quotes, paper with some stats in it and stuff. Um, the, the, <laughs> the numbers claim is, and everything. Numbers. <laughs> not just, it's not just, <laughs> I think dingoes should be a species because... They also, and those of you interested in um, wondering what did they do about the New Guinea singing dogs, they also regard those as a distinct species because New Guinea singing dogs, Canis holstromi, that got, that got a similar treatment back in the 1990s. Janice Kohler, Matznik and colleagues, they argued similarly that, that it's distinct enough to be regarded as a species. Uh, I but, think but, chihuahuas should be a new species. I think they're morphologically distinct, aren't they? Well, this is the problem. This is the problem. I don't see. I don't. I don't per se have a problem with this idea. This idea that if there's a distinct population and you want to recognise it as an entity, the problem is what I what I try and explain to people that don't agree with this is: Do you not realise that 
one person's species is not the same as another person's species. So there's no consistency at all, no mm. consistency whatsoever as to what species is. It's totally subjective. And most, most of us would think it ridiculous that a population of wild dogs, which are a known uh, commensal of commensal, is that the right word? They've got a known strong relationship with humans and are less than a few thousand years old. Most people would think it fairly ridiculous that they might be awarded species status. But is it really ridiculous? I don't know that we can say for sure that it is. No, and I think I think the interesting thing. Oh God, we're talking about it, aren't we? We're talking about. I it. told you not to, yeah, John. Yeah, I think if there's something, people want names for populations where you can say things about them that don't apply to other populations, and I think, well, dingoes probably have an interesting history in that respect, in that you might be able to talk about them as a unit. Yeah, um, there might be several i don't i don't really know very much about dingoes but there might be several things you can talk about in their terms of their genetic history their um you know yeah what they do in their ecosystems and that sort of thing that that don't really apply to other dogs and people want names for those sorts of things we've got a name it's a dingo but well yeah so this is the kind of one of the if you like a concern about this research is that it's our our decisions like this motivated by politics or conservation policy or something. Because mm. obviously, neither of us are going to be experts on this, but obviously, you know, dingoes have got a history of perhaps perhaps unfair persecution. So, and, and there are some people saying that, well, that's not fair. You know, we need to conserve this population. Other people would disagree with that. But, and if you say that it's a species, you know, there's a there's a slight suspicion that it may be politically motivated, or mm. motivated by yeah, some some concern. Although, although we in should in some ways tying um, a lot of conservation to species is a problematic thing, isn't it? Because there might be a non-unique species that's never like it's not a species, but the local subpopulation or whatever is ecologically very important. Yeah, I'm sure conservation biologists know a lot more about this sort of stuff than I could ever sum up. Well, this is a whole big a lot subject. of fu. Yeah, of course. Yeah, extinction um, management. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah. okay, we should stop talking about that because we're running. We're going to run terribly over time again. Another two-hour episode. I don't think we can subject people to that. Well, we should just at, at this point. What What do people think about the length of the podcast? Can you please give us some feedback in the comments or? Facebook or tweeting, whatever. Tweeting. <laughs> this is what I talk like normal. Uh, um, I'm from. This Croy. is your special. Yeah, normally you're doing a special podcast voice. A special uh, podcast voice. Is the BBC. Um, that would be quite an appropriate episode to use a clip British accent. Uh, yeah. Oh. Oh. Just got a message about the. Uh, Yes, Mark Whitten, I'm reading your emails while I'm doing podcasting. Because we're talking about the Lyme Regis Fossil Festival, which is on right now. And, and oh, yeah, I was meant to talk about this. Sorry. Our friend Mark has got a special, um, you know, paleo art exhibition at the Lyme Regis Fossil Festival running right now until something like the 4th of May. Um, oh, and it looks like I might be going to the I want to go to Mark's exhibits 
at the uh, the last weekend, which will be the second and third or something. I don't know. Second of May, third of May, I'll be in Lyme Regis. Yeah, Mark's message. Actually, I'm a discerning young man looking for a free. You're not young, Mark. Keep yourself. <laughs> Granddad, I'm a discerning young man looking for a free paleo art gallery in Lyme Regis running from today. That's the 23rd of April until May the 4th with the artist present at the gallery on his last weekend. Do you have any recommendations? <laughs> and I immediately said, nope, sorry, can't help. Um, yes, so yeah, the, the Mark Witten exhibit. <coughs> the Mark Witten exhibit at the Lyme Regis Fossil Festival. And if you like marine reptiles and crap like that, then go to Lyme Regis now. No one, no one likes marine reptiles. So boring. Oh my god! It just remind, that's reminded me. I wanted to talk about the new Hoopasukian. There is new... absolutely <laughs> no time. <laughs> okay, moving on. Well, we, we're going to have to bump this up to a weekly, aren't we? Pay us more Do we money. Have enough? <laughs> Are we earning enough? We're I don't have earning. the time for that. We're not earning enough yet. <sighs> okay, cash for questions. Cash for questions? Be ready for cash, cash for questions. Cash for questions. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I'll start with Mark Smith's question. As an ecologist with an interest in all things scientific, I wonder if Darren or John could briefly explain how much ecologically ecological theory, in particular behaviour, can be derived from fossilised remains. How good are assemblages in identifying food webs? And when looking at ecology, are specimens matched to a niche or a niche is matched to specimens? Or as Americans say, niche. <laughs> <laughs> um, I ask this as some species look like they would use one niche but actually use another. So, do you know the, yeah, do you know what the key word is in that entire question? Briefly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. It's something that's that's asked about a lot, spoken about a lot, and the problem with the fossil record is always lack of data. So, <laughs> is there anything intelligent you want to say before I say any more? Um, I'm guessing that there is better evidence for non-tetrapods than tetrapods. Is this yeah. correct? Like Probably, some fish but... assemblages are amazing, but they're fish. Yeah. And no one cares about fish. <laughs> so we can ignore that. This is a tetrapod zoology podcast. Quite right. So let's ignore the stupid fish and talk about tetrapods, in which case it's tricky, isn't it? There's not that much. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a couple of there's a couple of like things that we, we, we can say. First of all, I, any, anyone familiar with the modern world will know that food webs and such are really complicated. There's loads of substantially like overlapping relationships, and there's also really stupid, complicated stuff that we often don't appreciate, don't understand, under underappreciate, or have overlooked entirely until recently. And the the literature on uh, trophic cascades and various things have taught us that wholly unexpected weird relationships can result from other relationships that so just a, just a quick example right you know how there's been lots of study done of say north pacific kelp forest environments where historically you had a relationship between 
uh, giant sea cows eating kelp, kelp eaten by sea urchins, sea urchins eaten by sea otters. Then also in the same environment, you've got diverse fish and you've got seals and sea lions and fur seals eating the fish, white sharks and predatory whales eating the pinnipeds and then various other things, right? So you can build up this, this system, but then if part of that system is knocked out, so for example, people kill off the um, sea otters, that means a huge boost in numbers of sea urchins, which means a huge decline in kelp, which it's been argued, it's controversial, but it's been argued that this could lead to a decline in, say, herbivorous sea cows. But less kelp can also mean less fish, which can mean that eagles eat more birds than they because there aren't the fish to eat. And in this system, you wouldn't have predicted that eagles would eat more birds, which means that there's less ducks. <laughs> so, so as a result of people hunting sea otters, there's less ducks. That is the kind of complexity you can get in a modern ecological system. And if we that is not an entire that's not 100% accurate but that's kind of a semi accurate sort of model I just discussed if we can't if we really struggle to appreciate that stuff in the modern world where we're actually observing live animals think about the fossil things where we have one in a i don't know not one in a million but one in every i don't know let's say 10,000 individuals is preserved how many of those actually preserve evidence for ecological interactions like gut contents or you know bite marks on leaves or predation marks the, the, the number of actual interactions that we actually ever observe is, is really small. Sometimes we do have exceptional things like, for example, there's a Permian shark which has got a temnospondyl inside it and the temnospondyl has got something else inside it, you know, that, that kind of thing. So you've got like evidence for like a three-step uh, food web thing. But that's, that is exceptional. I mean, that level of detail. So yeah. what we... Given that we are so often constrained by lack of data, what we often do is look at a system where you've got, you know, a number of contemporaneous or sympatric taxa, and you think, well, that looks like a predator, so it probably ate that, and it could have eaten that as well, and it might have eaten that one when it was dead, and then that's a little predator, so maybe it ate that little one, and then that's a scavenger, and then you try and tie them together. But those are, in a sense, just so stories that are assembled just from us trying to un trying to reconstruct the animals niche from its anatomy and sometimes you know I mean, tyrannosaurus rex probably was going around biting triceratops and in fact we've got good evidence that it was from bite marks on bones but oftentimes you know we're kind of guessing sometimes we could be very off yeah and, um, i find this interesting though because it's one of those things when you get like down into the details everything looks really unclear and you're wondering how we're doing all this but if you zoom out a little bit some things are really obvious like well, Allosaurus is a predator. I mean, I just... <laughs> the notion that it wasn't... Um, uh, it was a secret herbivore. <laughs> yeah, secret. the notion it was a secret herbivore or something, it, it's obviously ridiculous. Um, yeah. In so, that case. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there are sort of a lot of... But there's <laughs> lots of that sort of thing. You know, there's lots of these macro sorts of things which we can be reasonably certain about. Um, but the pro the problem is once you start getting down into more interesting detail, it just becomes hopelessly unclear. I think that's the problem. With the the obvious stuff is obvious, but interesting stuff is much less obvious, which yes. is a bit of a shame. 
And we also, when we discuss these questions, we tend to think about the animals that we know reasonably well, like the big dinosaurs and mammals that look like modern mammals. But if we're in, in, if we're interested in reconstructing ecosystems as a whole, and if we, especially as we go back into like the Paleozoic and look at animals that are less familiar to us, um, often it's not really clear what they're doing. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the like Paleozoic tetrapods. There's kind of like vague ideas that lots of them are. There's like loads of groups of synapsids and prokolophanoids and capturinids and things that are sort of inferred to be um, herbivores or uh, eaters of arthropods or something. But basically, that's sometimes as far as the ideas go. It's like that was probably eating plants. Well, what kind of plants? What kind of part of the ecosystem was it exploiting? Was it even, you know, amphibious, aquatic? Um, terrestrial sometimes that's there are groups where that's sometimes controversial uh, yeah. not, not controversial or mysterious or not known yeah. and if you go for you know some models you can go for make a huge difference to the shape of the ecosystem and the sorts of interactions that must have existed so just one example pariasaurs you know there's big uh, archaic uh, parareptiles, like lots of body armor. Um, lots of reconstructions show them as being like terrestrial herbivores. But there are some authors who've are, and, and probably animals that had to deal with like Gorgonopsians, as a big predatory, non-mammalian synapsids, um, sort of pseudo saber-toothed kind of nasty big predators of the Paleozoic. Um, some authors have argued that pariasaurs were amphibious or even aquatic. Aquatic things are like fed on aquatic algae and stuff. And that's a bit of an outside bet, but it's not totally implausible. And if it's for real, it does really change the sorts of interactions we have to imagine. And that's kind of a case where you need hard evidence before you can go any further. I suppose, I suppose you should also say that as, we've, as we're becoming better at knowing what sort of science we can do on fossils, like... Uh, you know, different ways of modeling stresses and strains in bones and like analyzing isotopes and all that kind of stuff, we can reduce the number of possibilities that there are for the ecological niche and behavior of an extinct taxon. But um, mm. it's, I guess takes the, time. Yeah. The other, the other part of this question is, you know, identifying food webs. And I think that most fossil assemblages are nowhere near good enough to... Um, give you uh, anything like a clear picture of the whole food web right and there's whole swathes of taxa missing because the they don't preserve well in that sediment or whatever um so i think there's another sort of level of uncertainty of just having complete systems to look at we just don't have anything like that so forgetting the uh individual taxa sort of what did it do there's also identifying a food web is almost impossible there's so many missing things right even in the best yes. places yes yes so yeah in, in the best places like large data like lioning say early cretaceous china you've uh yeah we're getting a pretty good haul of things that made up and, and all the bulk of biomass obviously made up by insects and other arthropods and worms and whatnot we're getting a bit of that but we're never really getting enough to well the the very fact that you, you keep finding new stuff is telling you that there's you're not you haven't got anywhere near complete right once that mm. starts to well no it still wouldn't be true even if it did start to peter out but the fact that there are new things being discovered tells you it's not complete yeah. so is that answered and well, the answer is negative <laughs> sorry <laughs> mark smith's answer is no 
<laughs> I don't have a drink. I need a drink to play the <laughs> painted keezy drinking, Tetsu drinking game. But yeah, yeah, I think, yeah. That's, that's, we could, again, we could talk more about it, but it would just be rambling nonsense. That, uh, rambling yeah. on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we actually, Christian Mulally. Mulally? Mulally. Mulally. He said it was right last time. I should not be overthinking it. Um, <clears throat> I know these things. I sent one question, but it was actually two questions, so I split them in two. Are there any known vertebrate species or, or John... Or John. Or John. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any known vertebrate species or, or genre? <laughs> genera? See what I have to work with here. <laughs> I thought this would be easy. It's quite short. I was thinking, yeah, great. This is a nice short. Have you question. forgotten your medication and I can't again? Put out uh, that survived the MC extinction event and are found on both sides of the both sides of the boundary. Yeah. So the genera MC. that are found on both sides oh, of genera. the boundary. Genera. Mm, genera. Oh, I thought the question was about species because that's more interesting. Genera um, or spe species or genera. Okay. Uh, do you have anything to say? I know the no, answer because I don't know. Okay. Right, the answer's yes. Yes. Uh, and we move on. Um, when I was a kid, when I were a lad, uh, the books used to say that there was a placental mammal, a species of protungulatum, which at the time was always posited as some sort of archaic ungulate, and that was said to have actually crossed the boundary to be present in both the Hell Creek and the, um, uh, the, the well-known Paleocene fauna. That's close. I've forgotten the name of it right now. But um, uh, okay. A couple of problems is that the if you're looking at taxa on either side of the, the the boundary, often, as is the nature of fossils, they're often incomplete, which sometimes makes it hard for you to be absolutely certain that they're the same species. So there's a whole bunch of mammals. In fact, there was a paper by Jeff Wilson, published in Paleobiology last year, on the survival of mammals across the K. PG boundary, <laughs> take that, uh, MC. Um, and some of the mammals concerned, the ones on like the Paleocene side, could be identified to like to the generic level. So, for example, Cymolestes. This is some near placental little kind of vaguely stoty kind of little mammal thing often it's been posited in the past as like an ancestor of carnivorans or something but it's not it's outside of it's outside of the placental clade it's thought at the moment and there's species of cymolestes on both sides but the ones in the paleocene that they can the fossils are only good enough to be identified as cymolestes spur spur <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the ones is the ones in the Maastrichtian that have been identified to species level, and there's also some multituberculates. Similarly, the 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 Maastrichtian ones are the types are the, the type um, you know, the type specimens for the taxa. So, like in Mesodma, for example, there's a couple of species like Mesodma, I think it's pronounced Hensleyi, and there's another one Mesodma formosa. Whereas in the on the Paleocene side. The fossils are good enough to show that the, the the individual fossils are really similar to the type specimens, but they're not good enough to be sure they're the same taxa. So they're called Mesod Mesodma CF. CF. These these mammals have very rude names. We had Mesodma. what was it? Molestes. Cymolestes. 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 C
I knew you have a very dirty mind, John. Um, Simon Lessie's, this Simon Lessie's with a C, because there's also a pliosaur called Simon Lessie's with an S, which does confuse some people that don't know. Is that allowed? Well. I didn't think that was allowed if it was pronounced the same, but oh well. Um, I don't know. Do people pronounce it Kaima? I've never heard anyone say Kaima Lesties. Because hmm. basically, basically, there are no, there are, there aren't many people in the universe that know that there are no, no pliosaurs and mammals. So, <laughs> um, I'm sure that's not true. But Simolestes the mammal. So, um, so, so there are these. Yeah, there's mammals that. Where am I going with this? Okay, basically, there aren't mammal species that definitely cross the boundary because the fossil record isn't good enough for you to be absolutely sure that they are conspecific. Oh, we should say that to start with, of course, there must be loads of species that did cross the boundary because otherwise yeah. <laughs> otherwise, everything would have gone extinct and then everything would have been specially created again from scratch on the other side. That didn't happen. Um, but in mammals, the fossil record isn't good enough for you to show species crossing, literally crossing the boundary. But I'm saying that these these couple of multidiberculates this simulested, they probably did. Protein gulatum, um, turns out, probably did not because the things in the Cretaceous that were always said to be protein gulatum have turned out not to be, and protein gulatum proper doesn't debut until the Paleocene. So, a crappy fossil record, problems with being confident that things are part of the same species is part, is part of the, the, the problem here. Plus, in any case, you generally expect to have um, different... Um, you know, species tend not to last for more than like, you know, a couple of hundred thousand or a couple of million years. And the, the times we're talking about in terms of like the, the sampling, when the sampling is, you're not talking about lineages that are seen, seen to persist over tens of thousands of years. We're talking about things that are millions of years apart. That's a problem too. Um, there's a paper that's just come out about salamanders and salamander-like lysamphibians, uh, again by Wilson and colleagues which is published in Geological Society of America. There's, there's like a special volume on uh, late, late, late Maastrichtian faunas, um, which I just found out about it today. And I thought, oh, that would be relevant because it specifically discusses, you know, survival of these lineages across the KPG boundary. But it's paywalled and I can't get it and I can't even get it to institutional uh, access. Um, Nick Longwich and... Um, well, Bot, Andrew Bullard, and uh, Jacques Gautier published a paper in 2012 on squamates, lizards, snakes, and amphisbanians across the KPG boundary. The, the main gist of their paper was there was a high faunal turnover over the extinction event. And in the Maastrichtian, there are like about 30 squamate taxa, and the ma majority of them died out at the end of the Maastrichtian. So they're saying that there's good evidence in squamates for a ma mass extinction event at the end of Cretaceous, with then so there's several lineages that survive exploding in diversity in the paleogene. But they did report five species that did cross the boundary. And they were members of several different lineages. There was, there was a skink, there was a xenosaur, a couple of anguids, and a snake, Coniophis, also survived across the KPG boundary. So they're saying that they've got actual species that crossed the boundary. Um, so yes, there are um, there are definite species and genera that are recorded as having crossed the boundary. There are other groups where there aren't, but where they must have done. It's just that our sampling isn't good enough. So in birds, for example, there are no bird species that are present in both the Maastrichtian and the Paleocene, um, even though that surely must have happened because obviously we've got lineages present on both sides. 
So, um, yes, and of course, it would be more than even survived until more recently because things are going extinct all the time. So, you know, what I'm saying is that things that cross the KT boundary, KT, MC. KPG, KPG. You've got, got too many names for it now. The cross the cross the boundary um, wouldn't necessarily survive for millions of years after that. There still would have been a normal rate of extinction yeah. in the background. So yeah, yeah. So there would have been lots of things across the boundary, but didn't lead to modern lineages. <clears throat> yes, yes. Eee. So okay, lots of caveats answered. in there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the answer is yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, okay. Thundercats. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you thundercat away then. Right. <laughs> Another question. What are you doing, Lionel? <laughs> I've no idea what you're talking about. I don't think I've seen Thundercats. You're kidding. Classic. Yeah. Apparently, Snarf's real. Snarf is the name for the species. And the actual individual is called, like, Osmond or something. <laughs> Okay, I have no idea what you're talking about. Ah. Clearly, I haven't seen Thundercats because none of this is really any bells. <laughs> right, can I move on to the next question mm. now? Yeah. Mm. Okay, again, again from Christian Mulally. Why do large mammals lack long muscular tails while most non-avian dinosaurs do have them? Okay, what do you think? Uh, it's got to do with a shift of locomotor modes. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So the answer is history. History. Uh, to, to track the reduction of uh, butt muscles and, <laughs> and long tails in mammals, you have to go way back in synapsid history down to, well, things that aren't mammals or cynodonts, but they are therapsids of more archaic form and obviously you've got well in fact even in maybe things before i should have done some research on this haven't done any but in quite in in so synapsids the that the whole mammal lineage the synapsids they start out with big reptile like tails so as you expect in dimetrodon and ophiacodon those things which are often called reptiles but aren't that's synapsids um they've got big tails but as you get close to therapsids the major group that includes uh, Dicynodonts and cynodonts and they're in mammals. Um, yeah, substantial reduction of of uh, the tail and tail musculature. As is as is always the problem with reconstructing evolution, you can't say precisely in quotes why it happened, but for some reason, some reason they switch from tail-based cordofemoral star muscles to hip-based retraction, hip-based retractor muscles. And quite mm. why why do they do this? Well, there are several papers that have been published on um, locomotor ecology and and reconstructing the muscles of uh, of therapsids. Uh, the papers by Tom Kemp and you know others come to mind. But um, yeah, I I don't know why. I would I would like to kind of have some tidy explanation. I don't have one. But um, yeah, for some reason they switched to hip base retractor muscles, and therefore the tail wasn't important in uh, locomotory terms but it sort of hangs on there for whatever reason because uh, it's used for well tails are used for all kinds of things aren't they like balance and signaling and because they look nice and 
<laughs> so mammals actually start out their history. Ne mammals are already deeply nested within a group. They've got substantially reduced tails. They can like now have just like a long skinny tail, which they use as a climbing aid or it has some thermoregulatory role, um, balancing, prehension, um, in climbing. So, so synapsids are kind of unusual in reducing the tail but for that reason. But, but why they reduced it in the first place? why they switch to hip paste retraction. Um, I don't know. And, uh, and, I, and I, I'm going to go away and read a book and come back with an answer on that next time, maybe. Yeah, because birds did it too, of course. Um, yeah, for wholly different reasons, I presume. Yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's tricky to know, really, isn't it? In some ways, you can. I sort of, I'm always a bit puzzled by big, long tails. You know, it seems like a great big thing to keep alive for what seems like limited effect if you're not, you know, since you can get away with not having a tail and still be able to run about. Um, it is interesting that so many animals have such large, large tails. I mean, I think yeah. it makes a lot of sense in things like crocodiles or whatever, you know, primary mode of locomotion. But, um, yeah, I, I think it is interesting in land-based animals that tails have been retained, given that they're so big. And yeah, presumably expensive. You should think of a tail as like the normal, obviously the, a big tail as the normal condition, and and because you can't consider synapsids or mammals as like the ordinary animals. Obviously, they're outnumbered by diapsids and things. But um, but I don't know if you tot up the number of birds and the number of mammals. Well, that's still a pretty big number of things with reduced or near absent. Tails. Frogs don't frogs don't have tails either. So you and get and you get them all together. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a big that's a big. Well, maybe then. So the trend within tetrapods is to reduce or lose the tail. <laughs> <laughs> and the ones with tails, they're silly and backward. Uh, <laughs> it's a tetrapod so, cat's law. That is. Yes. 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 Yeah. Let's make a law out of that. Yeah. Um, what should we call it? Uh, there's a hoth wamper there. I'm going to call it Wamper's Law. What? <laughs> Cuddly Hoth Wumper. That, that's great. I have no idea what that is. Um, <clears throat> blasphemy. Can't call it Conway's Law. Well, no, I don't want this stupid law. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants a law named after them? Come on. Send I think, a... but uh, yeah, <laughs> continuing on this theme of a law, if we look at dinosaurs, does mention dinosaurs in the question, yeah, non avian dinosaurs. I think there is a trend to reducing tails in all sorts of dinosaur lineages. I think you see it in um, ornithopods. You see it in ceratopsians. Ceratopsians, um, definitely, yeah. Short, very short tails. And in things like ornithopods and theropods, you've got a reduction in tail length and mass over time. Yeah, yeah. Now, there was, do you remember the paper by Vivian Allen and colleagues where they showed that in Manoraptorans as kind of opposite to what some people had suggested before, they proposed that as forelimbs became proportionally longer and therefore heavier, centre of gravity moved forward, which meant that the tail was the tail was reduced at the same time, presumably as a result of centre of gravity moving forwards because of increased mass at the front of the body because of the large forelimbs. So um, on, overall change... Yes, yeah. um, that doesn't make sense. 
we've got that some somewhat wrong. Are you well, sure? <laughs> well, if you oh god, I did read it, but I've forgotten what that is. It was like a nature paper, a Lewis Ray picture on the cover of Nature and everything. Yeah, they showed they showed that um, yeah, forelimb enlargement in theropods was the key driver of tail reduction. I'm pretty sure yeah. that's the general gist of it. However, we're getting off tangent there because the the point your point is, and I agree that yes, within Within ceratopsians and marginocephalians, therefore, in general, you've got substantial tail reduction. In ornithopods, you've got reduction in tail mass and length. In theropods, you've got reduction in mass and length. Even though it's turning out that some big-tailed dinosaurs, their tail should not be shown as skinny as conventionally. As they it's still skinnier than the previous, you know, earlier. Shorter, yeah. I mean, you're talking yeah. about, like, celerosaurs have got, I think it's like less than 45 caudal vertebrae, whereas in uh, earlier tetanurans and earlier theropods, you're talking about like caudal counts of over 50 and more. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if it would even be true in sauropods. It'd be well, hard <coughs> to tell, but it might be. Yeah. Tail well, mass, the, not length, probably, but mass. Well, yes. So, because we're, obviously we're used to like brachiosaurs and brachiosaur shaped titanosauriforms having reduced tails and then we always we always think of like diplodocoids as representing kind of like it's a tree-based thinking mm. uh, people people are like inclined to think of something as diplodocoids as like okay bye can you edit that out <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah people are thinking of animals of like diplodocoids as kind of like Big quote marks here, more primitive than titanosauriforms. But no, diplodocoids are actually like super weird and super specialized. And if you go further down the tree, Cetiosaurus type animals, Shunosaurus type animals, they've got big tails, but they're not as hefty and long as those of diplodocoids. But, um, nevertheless, yeah. nevertheless. Diplodocoids, I would argue, are an odd um, yeah. offshoot there, just to keep my lore alive. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, I do. I do think this is a well. It, it that's the way it shook out in evolution. Dinosaurs that you do end up with. I would. I would say a reduction reduction in tail average tail mass over time. But yeah, why? Why does any of this happen? Hmm. And um, I would argue I'll... that tails are useless. Why would you have a tail? Get rid of the tail. It's just all the other animals being really lazy. <laughs> well, maybe it's one of those things where there's no push to reduce, to, to significantly reduce them. Certainly, to the extent that you'd say that it's like, you know, really short or lost, because there's no net, there's no like significant survival cost associated with it, and that it's something that's actually quite that confers advantages in terms of like. But there, you know, does seem to, but there does seem to be an overall trend to reduce them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's reduce them a bit, but not reduce them to the extent... So, so like, uh, yes, we've I, just established... Okay, so let's say sauropods, theropods, and ornithischians have all reduced their tails, but the majority of lineages have not reduced them so much that you would say that they've gone like as far as ceratopsians or birds. They've still got like a head... Like, even the latest... 
plesiosaurs have got substantially reduced tails. Um, here's what I argue. Here's my here's my theory. It is not to do with locomotion. And if you change from the sort of you know typical what we think of as lizard-like locomotion, where you're swinging your tail back and forward to drive your back legs, yeah. In that what's 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 the word uh, horizontal undulation. Yeah. If you change from that, then the tail becomes progressively less less useful and will start to get lost, which is why we see it lost in frogs. It's why we see it lost in a lot of dinosaurs, or big getting reduced in dinosaurs because I think they still do a little bit of that, but not so much. Plesiosaurs aren't doing it anymore. Birds aren't doing it anymore. I don't know about mammals because I don't know anything about mammals or non but they're Yeah, they're predominantly yeah locomoting in the vertical plane rather than the. The horizontal. Are you familiar with carrier's constraint? Carrier's no. constraint is the idea that, the, well, what you've just mentioned, the um, the lateral flexing of the body has a um, effect on uh, the ability to ventilate the rib cage oh, and therefore yeah. respiration. I didn't know it existed. I didn't know that was its yeah. name. Yeah. So 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 carrier proposed this model whereby it's adaptive for animals to rely on movement of the limbs more than uh, to, to reduce the lateral flexion of the trunk and to rely more on the uh, locomotory thrust of the the limbs, but because lateral so lateral flexing lizard style or you know like salamander style lateral flexing requires hefty cordofemoral muscles to like retract the femur. If you are going to shift away from that and rely more on parasagittal movement of limbs. You want to be reducing all that stuff, which means it. And you could understand that. I think the argument is that there's the organisms of tetrapods got locked into an arms race over this. That once one lineage starts to. But then there's the whole counter argument to that, which is that in actual fact, doing the sideways thing isn't bet isn't worse, or in fact, in some ways, it's superior to. The, but it's not as good at large body size. So, given Cope's rule, <laughs> which is also a fact, um, <laughs> organisms become larger over terrestrial organisms becoming larger over time. I'm kidding about Cope's rule being a, a fact, by the way. It's like a tendency in some lineages. It's not. A, it's not a rule. We should have said in our pterosaur discussion last time. There's a paper just come out. Um, uh, Roger Benson and colleagues on Cope's rule in pterosaurs, and they basically said that there is Cope's rule operating in pterosaurs. But um, uh, how can we tile this together? Oh, and we should also say that tail length in dinosaurs, Dave Hone published a thing on this, uh, well, probably a couple of years ago now, which, how long, how long are tails in dinosaurs? And mm, the sort of, one of the problems of the paper was it's actually really hard to say because fossils are not good. <laughs> <laughs> and there's big error, error margins. Of, and animals that we assume they have a certain number of vertebrae may have been rather different from that. <laughs> um, but it was quite variable, I think, was the upshot, wasn't it? That yeah. Was, so, so listeners, if you could variable. just, yes, if you could just please summarise everything we've just said, then there is your answer. I think that's a good answer. Well, I think it's yeah, I think it is like one of these hand wavy rule things, which has got to do with a bunch of things you have to have in place to make it work, which is why you just don't see a trend in all lineages because lots of lineages it's not an advantage but once you start to do certain different things it becomes advantageous but only marginally so which is why you get things like dinosaurs hanging on to big tails for a long time that's yeah. what i think it's got to do with locomotion but it's a complicated story about locomotion it's not a simple thing <laughs>
so that well, they were the questions from Christian Mullally. Exactly. Okay, now we've got a bit of a long question here. Can you summarize this question, Darren? Because I'm not uh, sure I can. Yeah, I it's for, it's a follow-up. It's from Mike at Terranscapes, if that is his real name. Please do not read. Please do read the entirety of this. <laughs> that's like, oh, that's, oh, I think that's a typo. <laughs> Please don't read the entirety of this. Okay, yeah. See my verbosity concessions below. Okay, so... Um, so this is kind of a follow-up to the question about the, the whole discussion we had about toxoplasma. So we've got to be real brief on this because we gave it, I think, quite a lot of time last time. Um, first of all, he says we're pretty smart. That's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> I seem to have Thank lost you, Captain my... Obvious. Yeah, I seem to have lost the gist of my question. Okay. Um, so a recap is, in more simple terms, can we summarize? <laughs> I'm adding loads of words. Sorry. Got to make these things funny. So, uh, um, Mike's kind of getting at that. Basically, may toxoplasma be benefiting from new adaptation to a new vector? That is, that instead of rodents being the vector between, well, rodents carrying it between cats, is it that humans, humans are. are Carrying or acting, or acting as the, the vectors, and if that's the case, uh, this sorry, Mike, this is very hard to summarize because you've written a lot here. Uh, if human infection has a similar behavior change as rodent infection, uh, he makes reference to hilarious YouTube videos. This would increase. This would lead to humans increasing cat populations. What that you mean that there are what that humans encourage humans help there to be more cats well i can't we do that i suppose uh cat fitness would increase a steady food and shelter would so i'm sorry i've got to i've got to read it out otherwise it's not yeah. gonna make sense cat fitness would increase a steady food and shelter would increase survivability when compared to the increase their meager nutrition bonus from more rodent consumption since humans while not shedding oocysts can easily spread them to other humans in increasing the human vector population through things like poor hand washing undercooked meat higher association with cats and at point four, the combination of increased host and vector populations and their very close association results in a large toxoplasma, in basically increasing fitness. Subsequent mutations in toxoplasma that would have been unfavorable to rodent infection. <laughs> this is quite, quite substantial and complicated. Um, so I... <laughs> I don't know whether to move this to the dumbass Darren section. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think this the whole the whole thrust of this is basically, um, well, it does substantially overlap with the discussion from last time. It's to do with to do with whether humans acting as the vector for this um, parasite would basically change the. Um, the, the evolutionary interplay between humans, rodents, and cats. And, and, and Mike is specifically saying that he's referring to a prolonged evolutionary time period, unless we subscribe to punctuated equilibrium. So I don't know. I mean, speaking purely for myself, I don't know that I understand it any better than I did when the last time we, we discussed it. John, you may feel differently. But um, um, I think... I do, actually. I do feel well, differently. 
I yeah. feel like I've got much less of a handle on what <laughs> Mike is trying to get at here. I feel this is this has become more confused for me now. Um, possibly because I haven't read enough about evolutionary theory recently. Um, but a lot of this, uh, he tells us that we've sort of made a mistake last time. We didn't get to his question quite right. Mm. But I'm not seeing that this time. I well, I, I kind I kind of think that. Uh, f- please forgive me if I, Mike, if I have totally misunderstood, but I, I do kind of think this sort of covers the same thing as last time. The the um the because ba- the basic gist here is that th- theoretically, are humans becoming the vectors, and is that is that like causing us to lead to I don't know a, what a, a benefit for for cats because we're becoming like cat slaves through <laughs> actually so he's asking whether it's becoming a benefit for to- toxoplasma yeah because we're in we've become the vectors and we're increasing the cat population well yeah because right? he's saying but could it be that toxoplasma yeah. could move entirely from rodents to humans um you know it's, it's subsequent hyper- hypothetical evolutionary events could actually lead to Toxoplasma, bit using us as the vector, and well, 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 yeah, because we, as as yeah, as as we said, it's like if there are behavioural changes in people caused by toxoplasma, which causes people to um, do things that are beneficial to the final host, that being domestic cats, then, and given the numbers of people that are keeping cats. With this, but would it necessarily lead to a switch away from rodents? Because cats are always going to be eating rodents, and there's still a lot of rodents, commensal mice and rats. So I don't know. For that reason, I kind of think it's. I don't know that we can ever say that toxoplasma could move entirely away from rodents and use humans only as vectors. Because it's not as if all cats that breed are using people. But you can understand you would get like um. Uh, lineages or clusters or whatever of uh, populations where it is where the relationship is only involving or predominantly involving humans and cats and toxoplasma and not going through rodents but in the population as a whole yeah I can't I can't think of like a tidy way to talk about this um, no and I don't oh yeah I don't I don't know enough about this stuff yeah, maybe we should ask. Yeah, gonna be, come on, there's got to be some smart listeners out there who know a lot about toxoplasma and parasitology and stuff. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So your answer, Mike, is yes. <laughs> <laughs> we appreciate we appreciate the question. We do. We just um, can't answer just, it very well. Yeah, <laughs> like you know, remember it's te- tetrapods or. <laughs> Toxopod zoology. Toxoplasma. Yeah. Uh, it's not zoology, though, is it? Well, no. <clears throat> it's not no. even zoology. <laughs> is that it? I think that's like that was the last cash for question. Was it? Mm-hmm. And we've been going for a while now. A while now. Yeah. 
my good timekeeping. I think we've probably been going for about an hour and ten minutes. Yeah, that's good enough. Yep. So remember, we want to hear from people what you think about the length of episodes. Should they be? Are they just right? Are they too long? Shut up, John. <laughs> Shut up, Darren. Or we want more John and Darren. Yeah. <laughs> um. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so yeah, let's uh, wrap up. Um. So. Stay tuned for thrilling news on TetsuCon. Mm. So join the Facebook or the Google Plus group. I I said this last time and I didn't do anything about it, but I'll start an email group or something for people that don't like either of those things. Um, And I'll set up... I think we're getting close to the time when you'll be able to book it, so Mm. keep an eye out for that. I'll announce that on... Well, we'll be all over the Twitters and the Facebooks and the the website. Yep. Yeah, you sh- I'm sure everyone's following us on Twitter and Facebook anyway, right? Well, no. Yeah. But there should be there should be a substantial overlap between the <laughs> listenership. If you're listening to the Tetrabodzology podcast, why are you not following us on Twitter and Facebook? Or maybe they're not on Twitter or Facebook. Well. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Um. The website for the podcasts is tetzu.com. Tetzu.com. There have lately been new editions of the Ethan Kosak's Tetzu comic, which is at is it tetzu.comic.com. No, it's <sighs> comic.tetzu.com. <sighs> Stupid words. <laughs> <laughs> he did a he did a Godzilla one lately, which is which was pretty sweet. Uh, there's also the uh, Tetsu Time, John Termel and uh, Albert Claus um, Adventure Time themed Tetsu hilarious comic thing, which is always worth checking out. Time.tetsu.com. Yep. Uh, I currently I tweet at Cave. Remember your failure at the cave. <laughs> I like that at one. Tetsu. <laughs> <laughs> you can tweet, I will. <laughs> Always with you, I can I do the whole podcast in your ease, I will. Mm. <laughs> uh, what the hell? Um, there's a, currently a blog called Tetrapod Zoology hosted at Scientific American. Articles there right now are about hornbells coming soon at Tetrapod Tetrapod Zoology. Uh, a day with Katrina. Katrina von Grau. Um, our books. So, if you're interested in Tetrapod Zoology and any of the material we cover in this podcast, you might be interested to know there's a book called Tetrapod Zoology Book One, currently available from all good digital retailers and the bad ones as well. Um, still, book two, it's coming, it's coming. I just have to get a crap load of other stuff out of the way. And John, myself, and our friend Memo Kozman have produced some books through a company that we call Irregular Books, including or consisting entirely of <laughs> All Yesterdays, <laughs> which is about science and speculation and paleontology, and the Cryptozoological on Book One. Cryptozoological on Book Two is coming fairly soon. Um, I think that's all. Oh, there's a Tetsu Tumblr as well, but Tumblr's a bit of a waste of time now, so I can't be bothered with that. What about you? Uh, I'm on Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> Clang. <laughs> 
don't bother going there. Yeah, um, my website, johnconway.co, where I have a Tumblr blog at log.johnconway.co. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook. You can find all the links from my website, johnconway.co. Do you think I mentioned johnconway.co? And, um, yeah, that's it, I think. Yeah, we're done. It's like that bit in Shakespeare in Love, where he says, no, not like thus, like thus. And then when he takes her clothes off, she's like, ha ah, ha, Gwyneth Spinneth. What the hell is that? <laughs>